Jeff Vanderstelt, in his book, Gospel Fluency, made this statement to his congregation as their preacher. He said this, I am an unbeliever, and so are you. Can't you imagine the congregation thinking, uh, like you may be right now, wait a minute, preacher, how can you preach if you're an unbeliever? And what do you know about me? Who do you think I am? I am not an unbeliever. But he's right. I could say the same thing. I, Troy, am an unbeliever, and so are you. Let me explain. You see, I'm a Buick. That stands for brought up in church kid. I started attending church when I was one week old. Growing up in church, I believed people fell into two categories. You are either a believer or an unbeliever. You are either a believer in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, or you don't. But now, after more than 30 years in ministry, I see that everyone, in at least some areas of our lives, we are unbelievers, including me. Now, when I say we are all unbelievers, I mean we each have places in our lives where we don't believe God, where we don't trust His Word, where we may question that what Jesus accomplished is truly enough to deal with our past, and we question that. Or maybe it's not enough to deal with what we are facing in this moment or the next. You see, there are circumstances where we disbelieve God's promises. For instance, his promise to provide. When the bank balance is too low to meet this month's bill, bills, we can doubt that God will provide. Or maybe we wonder if he can provide us with our next job. Or maybe we doubt that he cares as we get lost in caring for others. And it's in those moments when we do not believe what Scripture teaches us about God. You see, we have areas of our lives where we are unbelievers. Or how about believing the work God has done for us through Jesus Christ? Does it ever sound too good to be true? Jesus gave his life to make me a new creation. He died to forgive our sins and to change our identity from, from, from sinner to saint, from failure to faithful, and from bad to righteous and holy. And we can know these truths, but we can struggle to believe them at crisis moments in our lives. I am an unbeliever. Not every moment, of course, but I have those moments, and so do you. I'm certain of it. We all struggle with unbelief in God, because the message of who He is and what He has done for us, it can sound unbelievable at times. Take Abraham, for instance. God gives him some unbelievable promises in Genesis chapter 17. Just look at the text, Genesis 17. God promises that He will make Abraham's family, here's what it says, exceedingly numerous, verse 2. Now, this is a big deal considering Abraham is almost 100 and Sarah is 90, and they have no children. God also promises to make Abraham, here's what the text says, verse 4, the father of many nations. 
And as Abraham's family grows into a nation, God promises him that kings will come out of his family tree. Abraham will become a royal dynasty. And like us, Abraham struggles to believe the promises of our unbelievably great God. In fact, just look. After God makes these promises to Abraham, look what Abraham does in Genesis 17, verse 17. It says this, Abraham fell face down. He laughed to himself. Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at 90? Now from the text, it appears that Abraham laughs so hard at God's promise that he falls over. But this is not the laughter of joy. This is not a laughter of excitement. This is laughter of disbelief. You see, seeing the reality of Sarah's age, Abraham struggles to see his circumstances from God's point of view. See, all Abraham sees is a wife shriveled up by old age, a womb that is dead, a reality that blinds him to the God who created the life of Adam and Eve from the dirt of the ground, and he does not believe God can turn a barren womb to give life. Deep down, Abraham had disbelief. Alec Ryrie has said, when we disbelieve intellectually, it's because we want to emotionally. What does he mean? That is basically a paraphrase of Romans 1. You see, what God is like and what God expects, they're made plain to all of humanity. Romans chapter 1, verse 19. But as plain as they are, humanity has chosen to disbelieve the obvious. Why? Romans chapter 1, 25 to 26 says this. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who's for, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged nat natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Do you see it? Their emotions made them want to disbelieve what God made obvious. Hear that again. Their emotions made them want to disbelieve what God made obvious. Now that just doesn't happen with the unsaved. It can also happen for those who are saved, for those who know the truth. Can't we know what God's word says? But our emotions want to disbelieve it so we can do what we want. Take Peter, for example, in Mark chapter 8, 31 to 38. Uh, this is the passage where Peter makes his great confession. You, Jesus, are the Messiah. Now, what gives us great insight into Peter's thinking is the location where this declaration occurs. Peter's confession occurs in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is the capital city built by Philip to honor the emperor of Rome, Augustus. Now, as Peter stood in Caesarea Philippi saying, yes, Jesus, you are the Messiah, he could see around him the famous temple to the pagan god, Pan. He could see the temple for wor the worship of Baal. He could see citizens of Philippi worshiping the emperor of Rome as a god. Caesarea Philippi was a city built to celebrate power. So when Peter calls Jesus Messiah, he's thinking power. 
So when Jesus says he must suffer, he must be rejected, he must die, can't you hear Peter saying, Jesus, suffering, rejection, and death? Those are not on the agenda. Prestige, power, dominion, those are the priority. Jesus, it's the throne we're after. Jesus, it's not the cross. It is ruling the nations with power and might we seek, not persecution. Jesus, we follow you for a crown, not a cross. And Peter's emotions, they want to avoid suffering. So he disbelieves what Jesus is saying about his approaching crucifixion. His disbelief is so great. Listen to what Peter does. Mark chapter 8, verse 32. Jesus spoke plainly about suffering. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter takes hold of Jesus, pulls him aside, and he rebukes Jesus. You see, there are numerous times in Mark when rebuking occurs. We see Jesus rebuke demons and unclean spirits. Mark chapter 1, verse 25. Mark 3, verse 12. Mark 9, verse 25. We see Jesus rebuke the raging wind and the sea as it threatens to sink the ship that Jesus is on. Mark chapter 4, 39. So rebuke means to shout down. When Peter rebukes Jesus, it doesn't happen because Peter misunderstands Jesus' words. Jesus was so plain in talking about his suffering, Peter understood exactly what Jesus meant. Peter just didn't like what Jesus said. Can you imagine shouting down Jesus? Peter doesn't want to believe that the Messiah would ever suffer, much less die. But here's what I find to be most insightful. Jesus tells Peter why Peter can't handle the truth. Verse 33, Jesus says this, You do not have in mind the concerns of God, catch this, but merely human concerns. You see, Peter's attitude is wrong. His mind has shifted to human concerns, human priorities, not kingdom of God priorities. Peter needs an attitude adjustment. You see, when human priorities take precedence over God's priorities, Jesus knows exactly where the source of such ideas originates. You see, Peter's mouth may be the one that is moving in this text, but look at the source of Peter's thinking. Jesus says this in verse 33. Get behind me, Satan. You see, when Peter tells Jesus to avoid the cross, Peter is plagiarizing Satan. Remember back in the wilderness when Jesus was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights? What did Satan tempt Jesus with? Fame, power, and the worship of the crowds. All of that without the suffering of the cross. And Peter is saying the same thing. Satan is tempting Jesus through Peter. The cross was for Jesus not just a divinely assigned destiny. It was a choice. Jesus, as fully human, uh, Jesus, fully human as any one of us, had to choose moment by moment, day after day, right up to the very night before his crucifixion, to accept the terrible calling he had from the Father. It was never assumed. It was never automatic. It was never easy. Jesus was daily tempted to be another kind of Messiah, one who could be valorized, powerful, admired, and victorious. 
And now here, from his very own disciples, he hears the tempting words of Satan again. Peter is tempting Jesus to disbelieve God, that his death on the cross is the only way to save the world. Peter doesn't want to accept it. And like Abraham laughing at God in disbelief, Peter's disbelief causes him to shout down Jesus. Because because who would ever believe that victory over the world could be won by a Messiah defeated in death? When we trust in an unbelievably great God, how he works can leave us with disbelief, which is why I'm so thankful for Romans 4. In Romans 4, we see Paul wrestling with the way God does things. How is it possible for for God, a, a moral deity, to justify ungodly people who can do nothing to fix themselves? Now that sounds contradictory, doesn't it? Who could believe such a thing? So to resolve this, Paul looks to the story of Abraham to resolve this dilemma. The dilemma of how a moral God can save an ungodly people like you and I. Listen to Romans chapter 4, verse thir- beginning in verse 13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless. Verse 15, because the law brings wrath and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, let me give you some quick commentary here. God promises Abraham that he and his descendants will inherit the world, that they will be heirs of the world. But Abraham won't inherit the world because he kept the law of Moses perfectly. Abraham won't earn his inheritance from God by being good enough. Well, how do we know the law had nothing to do with God keeping his promise to Abraham? Because we find Abraham's story in Genesis chapter 15 through 17. We do not even learn about Moses until the book of Exodus, a whole nother book in the Old Testament. So if it wasn't obedience to the law that brought fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, what did? Well, let's pick up the text in Romans chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all. Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. That's you and I. He is the father of us all. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Now, this is too good. We need to stop again. What did God find in Abraham that allowed God to fulfill his promise to Abraham? Abraham had confidence in God. Because of Abraham's faith, God's grace treats Abraham as worthy, worthy of becoming a great nation. Abraham is worthy not because of anything Abraham did. He was unworthy. He laughed at God. 
No, it was God's grace. God's grace made Abraham worthy of the promise of blessing. You guys have gone to sleep on me. Wake up and hear that again. This is too important to miss. Abraham is worthy, not because of anything Abraham did. He was unworthy. He laughed at God. He was worthy because God's grace made Abraham worthy of the promise of blessing. Isn't that powerful? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now catch this, verse 19. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Verse 21, being fully persuaded that God had power. God had power to do what he had promised. Now here's what's shocking about this text. The way Paul refers to Abraham adds an interesting twist to this text. Paul says Abraham did not weaken in faith. Did you catch that? No, no distrust made him waver, verses 19 to 20. Now that statement makes you wonder if Paul really read Genesis 12 through 20. Paul must have known Abraham's story of consistent failure. I mean, you just read through the text in Genesis. Abraham puts God's promise in danger twice by by claiming that his wife was his sister. Genesis 12, 10 to 20, Genesis 20, verses 1 to 18. And then what about the time that Abraham didn't want to wait for God to make his promise come true through Sarah? So what did Abraham do instead of wait on God? Well, he impregnated impregnated his servant girl, Hagar, Genesis 16, 1 to 16. And what about the time when Abraham fell on his face laughing at God when God told him that he and Sarah would have a child together in their old age, Genesis 17, 17? He faltered. He disbelieved. So why does Paul speak as though Abraham never had unbelief about God and his promises? I think what's happening here is this. Paul is clarifying what it means to have faith. You see, Paul sees Abraham's faith as strong, unwavering, not because Abraham never doubted, not because Abraham never disbelieved, but because Abraham Abraham trusts in God's promises enough to take risks and steps out in faith. Think of the time that he stepped out in faith. At 75, Abraham hears God's call, trusting God. Abraham leaves his family and friends and security to go to a land that he had never even laid eyes on before. That's faith. Or how about the time that God commands Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, the very one God promised that Sarah would give birth to, and trusting in God's promise to turn Abraham's family tree into a great nation, what does Abraham do? He takes the risk in faith. Maybe Paul elevates the example of Abraham because when God calls Abraham, when God calls, Abraham walks his sinful, messy life by faith in God's power. 
What God promises is unbelievable, but Abraham trusts God's power to do what he promised. But look what that, but look what the promise is for us today, verse 20, verse 22, excuse me. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in God, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Verse 25, he was delivered over to death, Jesus, for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. What's God's unbelievable promise to us? Church, here it is. Since God raised Jesus from the dead, we can believe God's grace is able to make ungodly worthy of all the blessings promised in Jesus Christ. The grace Abraham received from God, it isn't just for Abraham. God gives this grace to anyone with faith, to anyone with confidence in Jesus Christ. So if you feel unworthy of God's goodness, good. We are all unworthy. But if you have faith in Jesus, God will give you grace, which will make you worthy of all the blessings in Jesus Christ, including eternal life. If you believe that, you have faith in an unbelievable God and an unbelievable gospel. If you want to know what your next step is in your journey of faith, get in touch with us. Call us at the church or, or email us at connect.blendville at gmail.com. That's connect.blendville at gmail.com. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, we want to show you your next step that can occur through baptism into Christ, where your faith grabs hold of the promises of God through the waters of baptism. If you want to know what this is and how to do this, give us a call. Call the church or again, email us at uh, connect.blendville at gmail.com. God bless.